2: on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 450 6624 or send an email to live at com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Joining me is my co-host, Mr. Steve ovens uh actually my co-host steve ovens who has a boss at, a new boss as of like 30 minutes ago welcome in sir
0: yeah uh surprise to some of us who don't really keep a pulse on what happens above us Uh apparently now we have a new ceo matt hicks has moved up from uh he used to be a developer and then he moved up that chain and so he is now the chief uh he he is the ceo and president of red hat now as of uh just a little while ago, the announcement went out.
2: Okay, and and so so uh, Paul Cormier, he was engineering.
0: Yeah, he moved up from engineering. Well, his his roots were in engineering. I'm not sure exactly where he came from right before moving into the CEO. Sure. So now now we've got a, a, a full blown developer that is running
2: the company. Do I understand that right?
0: Yeah, he's, he actually came to Red Hat, I believe in 2006, and he was working on like Pearl and Java stuff when, okay. he, when he came over. So, uh, he, he lived in the, in the development sphere and uh, now has moved up to the CEO. So my gut tells me I like this
2: because it's a guy. So it's a guy who's been at Red Hat for a long time. It's a guy who has software development at, at his core. And I, I somewhat believe that you didn't work at red hat in 2006, unless you ate the dog food of open source. I can't know that obviously, but if I was, if I was a betting man, if I was to speculate, I think I like this. I mean, time will tell to see how, how all of this plays out because this is what this is. The third CEO since the, well, really fourth, if you count, uh, no third. Yeah. Third. Since they, since the, since the IBM stuff.
0: Yeah. Well. Yeah. Um, I think it'll be interesting to see. I'm, I'm interested to see how um, Mr. Hicks handles things. Like I, I have never interacted with him. His sphere and my sphere, in terms of like the departments, are fairly far apart from each other. So while I was uh, familiar with Paul beforehand being like just because of engineering and stuff like that. I'm not familiar with with Mr. Hicks. So we'll see how things go. All right. Well, uh, you
2: I guess you heard it here first. Like you said, just a couple of minutes ago. This is, uh, was, you know, like 30 minutes ago. This is this is a new thing. But um excited to see where Red Hat goes with this. Um, hey, you know what? The number to join us, 855-450-NOAH. That's 855-450-6624. The email live at com. That's how you make your voice heard. Become a part of the program. Steve, you ready to get into some feedback?
0: Absolutely.
2: Our first feedback comes in from Wayne. Wayne writes in and says, hi, Noah and Steve. Thanks for all of your helpful episodes. I'd like to find a way of setting up a guest profile on Linux to where a user logs out of a computer and all full caps traces of that user existence are removed. I'm not really talking about a kiosk operation here kiosks seem to open a single window and allow the user to interact only with that I need the user to be able to have complete access to all of the resources on the computer, that is to say LibreOffice Shot, uh, you know, Shotcut, VLC etc. while they are logged in but all this activity be completely wiped out on logout, even browsing history etc. I've done quite a bit of digging on this and I've been quite surprised that there are no easy solutions I could find I look forward to any advice you have on this subject, best wishes, Wayne So, Steve, what would you do if I handed you a computer and said, I want to use this computer exactly as is. And when I want it, when I reboot it, I basically want to start over from scratch. Uh,
0: The first thing that came to mind for me was Tails because it's amnesiac uh, distribution, Mm. which means that it forgets everything about you. Uh, It might require a reboot. I don't you could probably put a logout script that that triggers whatever it does to clear things which i believe is just i believe because it runs in ram and therefore anything that is in ram when it's being rebooted is completely gone because it's not being stored on the hard drive which means that forensic utilities can't retrieve that just because of the way that ram my understanding of ram is currently so that would be Mm -hmm. the, the thing that i would think about what about you
2: So I've I've hacked my way through this uh, once or twice. Um, You tell me where the problem with this is, okay? because this is I admit that this is a hacky solution. So what we had done in the early days when we were doing kiosks at hotels uh, was we essentially created a sterile copy of the home partition and then on boot, the home partition is wiped. And the sterile copy is then redeployed uh, and that if you know, they don't have pseudo privileges, so they couldn't really make modifications of the system outside of their home directory. And no matter what you did to the computer on reboot was gone because we start we wipe back over and started f- fresh. A le- a, maybe a slightly less hacky way if I was to redo that today. What do you think of Squash FS? Yeah, I was
0: Squash FS could work. Um, it depends on how paranoid you are. I'm very tempted to talk about, to think about like TempFS or some sort of RAM disk, right? Okay. Because um, depending on how, how extreme you want to be in terms of not being able to get at anything, like even when you have something that you can write to part of the time, what happens is there are artifacts that will be on the hard drive Mm. somewhere that you might be able to recover. Whereas if you're writing it directly into RAM, and you could do something where you have the RAM disk and SquashFS is loaded into RAM, there might be something to do there.
2: Yeah, you know, there's no such thing as truly erasing a file. Like, that's something that human beings have kind of created the the notion of. But the reality is you can write data and you can overwrite data. You can't really erase data. So anytime you're writing to the disk, it may, well, that's what you're saying, right? It makes you nervous anytime we're writing something to the disk, even if we have a plan to overwrite it or, quote unquote, erase it.
0: Exactly. So just for a brief introduction, what actually happens is when you write to a disk, there is an inode that is used to track where on the disk that that file or the fragments of the file, depending on how big it is, exist. And when you delete a file, it doesn't actually delete the file, it removes the reference of the inode so that the system, the active system can't easily go back and find that file. As far as it knows, the inode is free and therefore the blocks that the inode is referencing are also free. However, if you took that out and ran it through any any number photo of rec. free open source software to do yeah photorec, you would easily be able to recover these things. It may not be able to have the metadata like the name of the file, but it would have the contents of the file.
2: So true story. Two weeks ago, I published the American Sign Language video for our church. It puts we put out a YouTube video and of of the, of the of the of the message being signed. So for people that have hearing uh, yeah hearing disabilities, and the. We recorded the, the, the thing. There's no, uh, there's no do-over, right? Because the signer's only there for one of the three services. So she does the thing. I take the memory card out and I place it into my computer and it says unrecognized format. Like it wants to initialize the memory card. Try it in a Windows machine. Try it in Mac OS. Same thing. All the way around. The memory card is totally non-readable. So one might think, oh, all the data's gone. There's nothing you can do. But the reality was even after formatting the card, Sticking it back in and running it through PhotoRec, it was able to pull all of the video files out. And as you so eloquently pointed out, they're just labeled 165 fdlz 4 but they're there. You just have to go looking.
0: Yep. So it all depends on how how paranoid you need to be, or how how um, not even paranoid, how much security conscious you're you're interested in in terms of wiping out information.
2: Our second email comes in from Gary. Gary writes in and says, hi, no one, Steve. I've been using Namecheap. They have a stellar plan for shared hosting to host a site. They're good, but the problem is they're often a bit slow, especially during the day. My site is very picture heavy. And my average photo is between three to five megs per image with getting a few up to six or seven. And then he links to a site. The site is is a Python 3 Flask site, and then he links to some stats. I just can't seem to get the caching higher. Here's the interesting part. I have the smallest Vulture, one CPU, one gigabyte of memory VM plus block storage that I have set up one time for testing, and it blows the doors off a name sheet. I've twice pointed the DNS to Vulture, no CDN. It's fun self-hosting Vulture, but I have a day job. An example. I just went to the site and clicked on two random pictures. One was 5 million. And it took 12 seconds to load and a 992 kilobyte file in six seconds. I was looking into Hostgator, but they don't offer 2FA for their accounts. Can you make a recommendation for hosting? I don't mind spending a bit more for performance if it'll be good. I currently host about eight email addresses with them, but I would be okay hosting email on one provider and a web host on another. Thank you, Gary. So, Steve, I'll start with you. Do you have any hosting providers that you're like, oh, this is this is the bee's knees?
0: Nope. I have no suggestions for this one.
2: So I have, we've used HostGator in the past. They're good. Uh, it works really well. Um, we have since moved to doing hosting ourselves. And I get what you're saying. I do. I get it when you say, I have a day job, so I don't really want to be the system administrator and the troubleshooter and the developer and the web admin and all the things. I might suggest that you consider looking into doing a self-hosting thing with something like Hugo and see if you couldn't get your site uh, up and running. One of the nice things about Hugo is it literally is applying a theme over content. And so you can write the content one time and then you can change the theme as often as you like. Now, the advantage to running with Hugo is a couple of things. So first of all, it can be deployed with Ansible, meaning you have a day job. So it would sound pretty good to you then to have to have a one-liner Ansible dash playbook tack I your inventory file the IP address with your uh, of your web host and then you Hugo deploy and then just wait and a few seconds later a Hugo site will appear with the theme that you've chosen. That would appeal to you. And in the event, in the unlikely event that you suffer a problem with it. As long as you are storing the content of your site or designing your site in some sort of, you know, if you did it through GitLab or even local, I suppose, as long as you have another copy, you can redeploy the entire site in a matter of seconds. Um, I guess depending on how many images you'd have, you potentially have to transfer those. The... Other upside, other than being able to do it with Ansible and automating the process, is you can potentially do it on any hosting, any place that offers server hosting. So today you might use Vulture, tomorrow you might use OVH, the day after that you might use DigitalOcean, the day after that you might spin up your own server sitting inside of your house. And it won't matter because you've standardized on technology that is scalable. One of the problems with HostGator or Namecheap or any of the other ones is you're tied to that service. So the website works well as long as it's with them. Second, you want to move it anywhere else, you're kind of starting over from, from ground zero. So uh, would I pay for HostGator if I was looking for hosting? Sure. Um, would I necessarily split out the email addresses into web hosting? Yeah, you can absolutely do that. Is there one great cheap web host that I'm aware of that you just have to use? No, I think if I was, I think, I think HostGator is probably, or there's maybe HostSlinger, something like that, um, are the two that that we've worked with and had really good luck with. But again, uh, these days, uh, I have a client meeting on Friday that we're going to talk about moving a client's website over, and it will all be done on Hugo. And that will be wherever the the least expensive, uh, proper performing VPS is that the client wants to go with. So that would be my suggestion to you, move towards more standard technology, and I think you'll drastically open up uh, your options. Our third email comes in from Heath. Heath writes in and says, Hi, Noah and Steve. In episode 288, James asked about using his Windows-based CAD software in Linux. If he isn't married to that particular program, especially he said he uses it to draft his boiler-making projects, would he ever consider FreeCAD or LibreCAD? I use FreeCAD for my 3D printer projects, and it runs fine on my third Gen i7 laptop with integrated graphics. According to the FreeCAD forms, it is possible to import AutoCAD DWG files if he needs to retain previous projects. My kids, however, have learned Tinkercad through their school. This is a web-based alternative, and I believe it's possible to import DWGs there as well. Being online, however, it may be a turn-off as he's on a farm with sketchy internet. Finally, he could t- to attempt to install Windows-based CAD under Wine. Hope this helps, Heath. So, I'll tell you just my... my My 30-second, my initial reaction to that is I don't know how well CAD is going to work under Wine, if only because I think they still do a lot of authentication with hardware tokens. And maybe they're moving away from that because I know they're going to a subscription thing, so maybe that's all changed now. But last time I looked, they were still using hardware tokens, and I question if Wine might not have some problems with that. But if that helps, then I'm sure James will be very thankful our fourth email comes in from Ian Ian writes in and says I'm wondering if Steve could share some details about his solar setup and how he's getting the information into home assistant many of the higher-end solar equipment managers seem to not have public apis for phishing data or something like mqtt monitoring and the low-end ones are pretty cryptic and poorly documented so Steve how are you getting metrics from your solar and I'm going to add to that how are you liking your solar
0: well uh I'll start backwards um I I really like our solar stuff. Um, I like I like the Enphase stuff. I'd done quite a bit of research beforehand, and I looked at the various options that were available. and And honestly, I picked I picked Enphase because their uh, controller has a local API. So the caveat here to the controller is that you have to uh, you have to from the command line go and get a JWT token, which is just a it's just a token that expires every six months. So it's not truly offline. You do need to have some connectivity once in a while to do that. So the controller needs to... Uh, the controller itself doesn't need to be online, but but you need to go and retrieve the token. Um, so that was part of the big driver, although that's only on the the newest thing. So the old one didn't require any kind of API. They just had a local user... or Sorry, a JWT. They just had a local username and password. So... Because my install is so new, and I have like the newer components for um, the microinverters and stuff like that, they have moved to either a JWT token, or you can log in with your Enphase account, which I don't particularly like. But you can still do it so that you have local access and it proxies the um, it proxies the authentication. How I get that into Home Assistant. There's a couple of ways you can do that. Once you have the JWT token, you can, you know, bang on the local API as long as you like. There is a hacks integration for the newer version of Enphase stuff. If you're fortunate enough to have the older version of the, of the firmware, there is an official integration in Home Assistant for Enphase that, um, because it had the local username and password. So, the as of yet, the official integration does not support the JWT token. I believe that's coming. So in the meantime, there's this hacks, which was a fork of, of that one, and yeah, it just goes out and gets a six months JWT token. And that's that's basically all there is to it. If you wanted to, they have both the cloud API that is accessible to you, and like I said, you can also hit the local API and it is documented. On their website. So even if you didn't want to use the hacks or anything like that, and you just wanted to curl against it or whatever, those options are available.
2: End phase, We'll have a link for you in the show notes. You'll find those at podcast.asknoahshow.com.
1: From the Linux Newswire newsroom, this is the Week in
3: Review with JT. According to the Pharonix Benchmark Suite, Linux performs better than Windows 11 on the latest Intel i9 systems. Enrique Trump, the CTO of VRMada, has announced that Ultimate XR will be a free and open-source framework for creating enterprise-grade immersive training scenarios, collaborative environments, and interactive gaming experiences. EMQ, a leading provider of open-source IoT data infrastructure, officially announced the latest release of its IoT platform and MQTT broker, EMQX 5.0. Calibre has announced a new major version of its popular ebook management software, Calibre 6.0. The Budgie Desktop team has released version 10.6.2. Linux Mint 21 Beta is now available for download. Debian Linux 11.4 Bullseye has been released with 79 security fixes and 81 bug fixes. Kali Linux, the popular open source Linux distribution specializing in penetration testing and ethical hacking, can now be used by Linode customers. In other security-related news, Paladin Cloud launches its open-source security as a cloud platform. A researcher finds an Android zero-day vulnerability allowing the attacker to gain arbitrary read and write access, root privilege, and the authority to disable SE Linux. The researcher has stated that the standard Linux kernel is affected as well. And recently, a new and completely undetected Linux threat, referred to as Orbit, has been discovered by cybersecurity researchers at Intezer. After BPF Door, Symbiote, and Syslog K Orbit is now known to be the fourth Linux malware to emerge within the last three months.
2: Joining me on the program is Philippe. Umo, the co-founder and CEO of CrowdSec and a guest this hour on the Ask Noah show. You can learn more at crowdsec.net. Philippe, welcome to the program. Thanks for taking the time to be here. So I'll get right into it, Philippe. What is CrowdSec? How does it work? And frankly, why did you start CrowdSec?
1: Yeah, uh, well, that's a lot. To, that's a lot to unpack. Uh, so CrowdSec is basically a, a network of users that protect themselves. And while doing so with this open-source project, this open-source product, they create a global network and share the threats they have faced together to block the IP for, from further being aggressive. So let me explain this a bit more. Um, you have an IDS, an Internet Detection System. It's detecting in your logs if anything is going wrong. And if so, it takes the IP address and blocks it. But moreover, it's sharing this IP address with all other users in the network in real time so that every other user is protected as well uh, before it even reaches their, their servers.
2: So when you say it's sharing the IP address with other networks, are you talking about other machines within one network or other, any machine that is running uh, CrowdSec?
1: Yeah yeah, accurate. Any machine running CrowdSec will then receive the signals that this IP address is nefarious and dangerous. Actually, the way it works is that we receive a lot of inputs, something like 1 million, 2 million signals per day, okay? So signals are violations of whatever sorts. It could be like someone trying to guess your password, it could be like someone scanning your website or scanning ports or doing credential stuffing, credit card brute, uh, credit card stuffing, credential brute force, uh, post scan, uh, ransomware letter move, whatever. Okay. So any of this is an insight, any of this is a signal. We curate those signals in CrowdSec, and we apply some kind of pressure on the IP address that is behind them. So if enough people in a network are seeing the same IP address having the same behavior, then this IP address gets a reputation of doing this kind of behavior. And as long as it has, reputation, it's real-time, obviously, while it's blocked in all the crowds that network. And the day it's cleaned by its legitimate owner, the pressure is released and the IP address is clean and can do its life again.
2: So this is very interesting. You've essentially taken... uh a security model and you've wrapped it inside of the community. We talk about the power of the community all the time in the way of sharing information, sharing code, uh, sharing troubleshooting. Now you've created a way to share security information to secure networks through crowdsourcing. I mean, that's really fantastic.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's a different angle, and yet it's something we already all know. I mean, if you think about it, we are, we've been inspired like in a great way by Waze. Those guys are geniuses, honestly. And the, when they described their product, when they started their product, nobody would really understand the point of like sharing all together. But it, all of a sudden it became obvious because cabs were using it, right? And when your cab is using it to gain time, they gain money. If they gain money, it means it's efficient. So there's something to it. So you try it, and you're like, wow. How could that drive on the road without the insights of the others, without the insights of the network? And it's the exact same thing for the cybersecurity. The thing is, there are probably, uh, say, X cyber criminal uh, at large on the network. But we are 10,000 X people willing to use the Internet of a proper way. Except we all defend ourselves as individual, And we thought to ourselves with my team, like, let's be 10,000 X versus one. Instead of being like one versus out next. Because the bad guys, they do team together. And we were not up to now. So this is what we are trying to change here. We are trying to let the good guys team together.
2: Somebody has
1: obviously
2: pushed back on this. Somebody has obviously said, Philippe, this is not a realistic way to go about security. If you want to go about security, you have hire a security team and you do research and then you publish out. And, and you've essentially said, Turn this over to the community. Let them report what is happening on their network, and other people will benefit from that. Can you talk a little bit about the reasons and benefits behind the concept of relying on on crowd data or a crowd or crowd data for the reports?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, there's one thing we need to to settle down right right now in the discussion is that we attack the IP address because this is in scarcity. This is a resource that is scarce to the uh, cyber criminals, as opposed to, for example, domain names. You can book as many different domain names as you want. You can create them on the fly. So there are actually basically an unlimited number of domain names you can book, right? So if you fight against domain names, you're always one step behind. Same, if you fight against signature, like what we call hashes of uh, malware, you just have to change one byte in the malware and the whole signature is different. So what we know for sure is that behavior is an extremely strong uh, system for detection and IP address is an extremely scarce resource for the hacking uh, community, for the cyber criminal, sorry, community. So we thought, okay, let's, uh, let's apply those two uh, systems that confront those two systems together, and while we are at it, let's block the IP addresses that are aggressive based on their behavior. And yes, some people will tell, will push back, saying, okay, you know what? There are so many IPs. Well, first of all, there are not just so many IPs. Exactly, there are 3.2 billion IPv4 addresses that are uh, available over the internet, and, and IPv6 is not a solution either. I can go to extend in this, but. It's not a real solution either. So if we stick to this 3.2, some of them are used by several people. Some of them are used, for example, by BVPN. And there will have people telling you, you know what? If they use VPN, haha, ha, you lost. Well, no, because it's a real time pressure system. So as soon as it starts using one IP address, we can blacklist it. And as soon as it's cleaned again, we will remove it. So meaning it was true in the old world where people were sussing or researching by themselves and it was a slow process and people were updating their block list once every month or something like this. Now, CrowdSec block list is so dynamic with tens of thousands of machines that this block list is literally real time. There are newcomers in the IP block list and people exiting the IP block list every other minute. And that's the force of it because, okay, they use a new IP, we block a new IP. They drop this IP, we drop this IP. No problem. Let's fight.
2: What is the process for getting an IP clean? Let's say I, uh, I dial up to my VPN and I'm not a malicious user, but the person who was logged on to my VPN service previously maybe was. What does that process look like? How long does that process take?
1: So it's quite it's quite quick, actually. What happened is we use an algorithm, and it's, it's actually essentially, it's, it's a large part of our investment, this specific algorithm called the consensus. So the consensus makes it so that every uh, user in the network has a trust rank. We trust them or we don't. For example, we don't trust them before they are part of the network, a member of the network, for six months is at least. Before that, they are in quarantine. We don't listen to them even. Then after, if we have enough reports from enough different entities, and I use the term entity here rather than user because it's not based on the IP address you have. I mean, we don't want people coming into the consensus having 3,000 or 30,000 IP addresses and bullying the decision. So uh, Microsoft is one entity you know, because it has one AS that is named Microsoft. So if any IP comes from Microsoft, we count one vote, you know. You are one entity. I am one entity. Maybe your VPN provider is one entity and so on and so forth. And as long as we have enough votes, enough pressure put on the IP address in real time, then this IP address is included in the block list. Now, the contrary is true as well. When the previous user delogged from this IP address and released it, It stopped using it for nefarious purposes. And then the IP address is automatically clean from the database because, you know, the pressure has been released. It's not doing any further shenanigans. So we consider it now clean, and it should not be part of the block list anymore.
2: For those that don't know, Philippe, can you explain what an IDS is, what an IPS is, what the difference between them are, and how CrowdSec plays into either of those?
1: Yeah, sure. So, I'm not even sure this is the proper lingo we're using here because you know, we were told that these are uh, words from the 80s or the 90s. I don't care much. An IDS is an intrusion detection system. So basically, it reads uh, source of information. Here for us, it's logs, right? And they detect things in the logs or in the source of information to detect whether a malicious activity is taking place and someone is aggressing you, right? So this is the IDS. The IPS is an intrusion prevention system. What it does is, based on this detection, it's blocking or actually remedying the IP address uh, threat. So basically, when the IDS is detecting something like say a credential brute force into your logs, someone trying to get access to your, say, your FTP server, right, well, the IPS will send, uh, let's say, a multi-factor authentication or just drop the IP address uh, in the block list of the firewall or in the load balancer, wherever it makes sense for you to act. If you're on a web layer, the IPS can send a 403 or can send a CAPTCHA, for example. So those are two different components, and we wanted them to be separated because we want our users to be able to be as flexible as they want. If they have very lightweight setup, like for, I don't know, uh, an ingress controller on a Kubernetes infrastructure, for example, they want to be super light and they want to just use a block list and maybe detect logs in a very simplistic way. Now, if you're working at GoDaddy or a major MSP of some sort in the world, you concatenate logs from 100,000 of machines and you want them to be all put in the same place but maybe you want to answer it with the IPS in different places. Maybe you want to protect your cPanel. Maybe you want to protect your mail server. Maybe you want to protect your WordPress uh, website. So these are different IPS components. One agent, one IDS, and different IPS that reply in the way that is the most suitable to your infrastructure.
2: So let's talk a little bit about your product, specifically CrowdSec. They're, I understand that there are there are at least two components. There's the CrowdSec agent and the CrowdSec console. What are those components and what do they do?
1: Yeah, so there's the IDS. We talked about it, the agent. There's the IPS. We just talked about it as well. All of those are free on open source. And there's a console on top of that, which is a SaaS service. So most of it is free. And there's a premium access if you want to store more data, more uh, data point and uh, larger history and stuff like that, more signals, let's say. Uh, but basically what the console does, it's, it's concatenating all it sees on your network and uh, bringing all the, all the violations and bringing it into a console, a visual console. And it tells you, okay, this machine, XYZ-Alpaca, uh, uh, was aggressed by this IP address 10,000 times today on a VOIP protocol. Okay, so you can dig into those logs, dig into it visually and have a better monitoring of what's happening on all your exposed surface. You know, this is really important for the SecOps people to see what's happening on their whole surface. And also this console provides a second thing that is very interesting is a CTI uh, component. So the CTI is Cyber Threat Intelligence. The CTI does uh, the following. If you type in an IP address, it will give you uh, what we call the Pokemon card. Don't tell this to Nintendo, they will be upset, but they will give you the card of this IP address. And they will tell you, we know this IP address for like 24 hours. It's been very active in VOIP brute forcing. uh, And it is in the block list of the community. And obviously, what you see in the CTI can also be queried directly through the API component. So if you want to interface those information into your CM or into any existing uh, CTI you have, no problem. We provide that as well.
2: Are you aware of any problems with existing IPS or IDS systems? And does CrowdSec do anything to resolve those problems?
1: Well... Yeah, well, some of them, like default component in Debian and a lot of other or close to default components in a lot of Linux distros, are first of all only Linux and maybe not compatible, cross-compatible with BSD and Windows and stuff like that. Uh, so Crowdsec does this in in this way that it's compatible with every environment. It's written in Go. It's also, compared to others, extremely lightweight. It it consumed a a fraction of a core and and a few uh, hundred megs of RAM, like really at maximum uh, for normal infrastructure. One day we had one guy coming saying, you know what, your product is consuming 16 gig of RAM and close to one core on my machine. Like, okay, well, that's a lot. What are you parsing? Well, 20 million lines of log per day. Oh, my goodness. Well, 20 million, guy. I mean, honestly, for one core... I wouldn't complain, honestly. Well, whatever, so there is this. Uh, it's 60 times faster, for example, than fail to ban. Uh, it can have also different type of scenarios uh, which are more convoluted. Like say, not everything is aggression. Like if you want to have something that is a bit subtle, we can use the example of um, um, <laughs> scalping. Scalping is one of the plague of e-commerce. So one of these plague is, someone sees PlayStation 5 on the webpage at Walmart and it instantly buys it with a a script and resell it on eBay for a profit, right? So it's organized shortage and the guys are making a hundred bucks as a man in the middle, right? So per se, it's not directly an aggression, but it's still a nefarious behavior as perceived by the user of Walmart, by Walmart itself, by Sony and so on. So you wanna block this, right? And this is a subtle, delicate behavior because what we see is that those buyers are not going through the classical ways of an e-commerce of a retail website. They don't browse pages before entering the PlayStation 5 pages and then adding it to the cart. They directly call the JavaScript and put it in the cart and check out instantly, which is a weird behavior for a normal user. So Mm -hmm. we can block it and we can prevent it from happening. So what I'm, what I'm saying here is like this: ITS component is more flexible and available for more environments than any other IPS to my knowledge. So you're you're essentially you're targeting behavior as opposed to targeting technical
2: specifications. That's a really interesting way to look at that. Hey, let me ask you this: So you offer three tiers? The first being the community tier. Help me understand where the value is in the professional tier and enterprise tier. What are people paying for and what are they getting for that money?
1: Yeah, sure. So the free tier allows you to have seven days of retention of your signal in the console, right? So after seven days, we have a short memory and we don't store any more information for you for free. And it's uh, these or a certain number of signals. In my memory, it's 20,000, but I have to double check that, right? If you are above this, we consider you not a personal user. Or you're not know, the next door hospital or whatever. You're a larger company and you can pay for that. And we are okay to provide you with more storage, more data retention. But then, you know, it's fair that you pay a little price for that. Uh, it sounds just, uh, just normal. And the enterprise tier is even higher, like you have more features. Uh, than in any other plans, obviously, and they're all viable because there's, not, there's nothing like a one-size-fits-all on the market. Honestly, some people want SSO, corporate SSO. Uh, some of them want multi-tenancy. Some of them want uh, group uh, users or white-label uh, console. Some of them want extra lists. For example, we provide extra lists either from our own uh, pool it can be, for example, residential proxies or VPN exit nodes or Tor exit nodes or I know all IPs from China or whatever. And you can put this in your IPS mix. Maybe you don't want any IP coming from a Tor exit node. No problem. Well, in the professional and enterprise plan, you can subscribe to three lists and unlimited number of different lists in enterprise. You have support, obviously. You have also self-monitoring. Maybe you want to know when your IP address starts to be seen by our network because it means something is fishy here. Maybe you've been compromised. Uh, The enterprise also gets some zero infrastructure system, meaning they don't have anything to deploy locally. We deploy everything for them in the cloud and they just have to connect, which is very convenient for them. We also have features like uh, background noise filtering, which is pretty simple, but nevertheless, uh, it's it's interesting for a lot of companies to be able to remove, you know, what is just the background activity of the Internet, what we could call the background radiation of Internet, as opposed to targeted attacks toward you and only you. Uh, professional and enterprise also get some sort of um, sense of verticality. I Meaning if an IP address is aggressive only toward automotive industry, toward media, or toward energy, well, we'll tell them this IP address stands out as being very aggressive toward your vertical, so toward you specifically, and not toward the rest of the internet. These are the main differences we see in between all those plans.
2: Being based in Europe, you have to deal with uh, GPDR requirements. Talk to me a little bit about how you deal with GPDR compliance.
1: Yeah, well, it's it's a very interesting and very important point in Europe. I think for this, we are pretty much advanced uh, in terms of the protect, protection of the uh, privacy of users. It's something that is less uh, uh, stinging in the U.S. It's very, very, very crucial for Europeans. So basically what it says, if I have to summarize it, is store the minimum information for the minimum amount of time. This is what it states, basically, uh, GDPR. So if you're storing for an extra amount of time something that doesn't make sense, well, you can be condemned for that. So basically, we consider that this IP, if it's ever, this, uh, this uh, data, sorry, if they are ever lost, Well, the user will never be able to protect themselves and they will barely know about it. So you were not supposed to store that many information in the first place and you are uh, the one guilty here. So what we do is we store the very minimum amount of data you can think about, like basically the IP that aggressed you, the timestamp where it was aggressive toward you and the behavior it tried to trigger in your place. That's pretty much it. And we never, ever, ever export any log outside of your premises. Because, uh, first of all, it would be costly to treat them, export them, and so on. We prefer you to treat them locally, right? And uh, second, it's a good way for us to respect GDPR by not exporting anything sensitive.
2: So I've installed CrowdSec. I have it up and running. I can detect threats. But what do I do if I want to act on them? How do I make that happen?
1: Well, the, IPS, the IDS detects it and the IPS blocks it. So basically, you really have to install both, or except in very specific setup where you just want to detect. But most of our customers want to use it in detection and prevention. So you install it, you see uh, whatever is happening. Now you install a second component, which is called the bouncer or uh, AKA the IPS, and you you pick the one that is you know right for you. So maybe you are a retailer, say, okay a retailer never ever wants to block an IP address. It's super stress for him because he always think that, oh my God, if I block an IP, it has to be the one that will make this 1 million magic card that I was waiting for the whole year. Oh, so obviously it's not gonna happen like this, but you know, this is a fantasy and you don't want to, to fight against fantasies ever. So what happened is, you use a bouncer that is proper for you. You use a bouncer that will be like very soft and just send a captcha. That way you're not at risk of blocking a legitimate user. Uh, if you are, say, uh, SMTP uh, system uh, running a lot of mail servers, You don't care about banning half of the internet if you want to. It's it's something you've been doing for the better part of the last 20 years, so it's absolutely no stress to you, right? So this is why the IPS component, we have like 20 different of them. You can use whichever you want in whatever context. You can use a PHP one uh, if you want to use it in WordPress. You can use one from Magento if you want to only block IP addresses that are doing credit card stuffing in uh, in the payment tunnel, for example. So we want to give the... User the opportunity to really have the answer what they want in the way they want what
2: about best practice if so I run a uh, an it consulting company and so we're a managed service provider have a number of different clients let's say we wanted to take part in crowdsec is best practice to have one central crowdsec instance and then have the bouncers and the agents on a bunch of different machines, or is it really better to have separate instances for each organization?
1: Well, we've been in those shoes before, you know, uh, because my, my team and I, we come from this background of MSP, MSSP. We do also a lot of pen testing for two decades. So what we found out is that there's no one size fit all on the market. I mean, the product are, are willing to make you fit in one or the other direction. The reality of it is sometimes you have containers and you want to protect containers. Sometimes you have large machines or, or legacy, you cannot possibly migrate like one day to another. And these are all legitimate use cases. And then you would answer in different ways uh, to those different use cases. So what I would advise users to do is like, don't worry much, CrowdSec is super lightweight. So if you want to use them uh, on a small machine, it's doable. If you want to use them on a the huge lockpit, it's doable. Just make what's, what makes sense for you. Just use it in the context that is the most suitable and the most comfortable for you. We made it in such a way that it can be one agent on a huge lock pit and it would work, or several very lightweight agents on several different places and it will work as well. You can block in one place or in many places. It's really, the, the setup can be one to one, one to n, n to one, or n to n. And there's no really preferred way of doing so. If you have a legacy structure with like a lot of servers that are Uh, usually you concentrate your logs in one log pit, then you put one agent, and maybe at the border, very high in the, or rather very low uh, in the OZ model, like at layer three, uh, around the firewall or the load balancer, you would toss uh, the IP away if it's dangerous. Now I think that it can have a drawback and eventually, you may want to use rather a CAPTCHA, for example, at the higher level if you're a retailer. So it's really about how you feel about it and how you want to organize your defense.
2: Talk a little bit about replay mode. This was really fascinating to me as I was, I was looking over what your product is capable of. What is replay mode and how does it work and how does that help you identify or simulate security threats?
1: Yeah, so the replay mode does two, um, two things at it. So the first thing, we wanted to be uh, able to help forensic teams to identify whether a system was compromised by IP address we already know in the CraftSec community. So basically, you take your logs, you inject logs from the past, say from Nginx, from Apache, from your file, whatever, and it will pass the logs and say, oh, I know this IP address. And back then, in the days when this log was captured, we know that this IP address was dangerous and nefarious and controlled by a cyber criminal. So maybe this IP address was the one that, you know, uh, compromised you further into your infrastructure Infrastructure. So this is really the, uh, the the thinking of a pen testing team or a forensic team, rather. Uh, the other thing we devise this uh, this function for is to help you fine tune your uh, system. So basically you prepare your scenarios, you say I'm installing like 20 different scenarios that I want CrowdSec to deal with. Now I wanna be sure that none of them will ever report a, a false positive, right? So you replay your logs from the past and you see if CrowdSec would have react on anything. And if it did, uh, it would have blocked potentially something that it legitimate or on the other side is the, the the fine tuning you did is too soft and you want to strengthen it until the values are perfectly fine-tuned to your liking into your protection system so that's why you know re-injecting locks from the past is very useful either for fine-tuning or for forensic reasons.
2: If I wanted to integrate CrowdSec with a firewall. I see that there is an integration for OpenSense and Fortinet. Any plans to integrate with PFSense?
1: Oh, wow. That's a huge demand. Like, honestly, it's what we call popular demand, right? <laughs> At that stage. So, yes, yes, yes. It's, it's on the roadmap. It's coming very, very soon. Um, since CrowdSec is already available for PF as such, because OpenSense re- uh, rely on PF on BSD, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it, underlying if PF Sense is the same thing. We had a little slowdown in this because we support more uh, OpenSense because it, the licensing is closer to our thinking. PFSense changed its licensing lately and we didn't know where it would go. Uh, It seems it's okay. So we are resuming our work on PFSense so the community can be reassured we will be releasing CrowdSec bounce up of PFSense. It's totally doable already to use CrowdSec with PFSense without much uh, trouble. It's just you don't have the fancy interface. And also for all the other firewalls or others, I don't know, WAF like Imperva or Cisco ASA or whatever, it's super easy to integrate a third party source uh in those appliances they are pretty smart they let you pull a list from a url and based on that you know integrate those ip address in the block list that will be directly dealt with by your firewall so basically the only thing you have to do if you have such kind of firewall uh, is to subscribe your firewall to the block list of crowdsec
2: Philippe, there is somebody out there listening to this and they're thinking to themselves, this sounds amazing. I want to get started with CrowdSec. I want to give this a shot at my home or in my business or I just want to play with it in my home lab. What is the best resource for somebody to take the next steps?
1: Well, definitely doc.crowdsec.net. It's it's, it's explaining you how to install it. It's very straightforward. Specifically, if you have a Linux or or BSD environment, it's mainly like a one-liner to install CrowdSec. Uh, and the documentation is very, very detailed, yet very simple. So basically, you should be up and running in like a, a matter of minutes, really. Uh, if you have a complicated setup, we would advise you to make it like in a, um, in a sandbox somewhere in a few uh, on a few machines or integrate it directly into your terraforming components so that you can deploy it as a standard into your networks. Here again, the documentation will tell you how to do that. So the best resources would be doc.crowdsec.net. Philippe Umo,
2: co-founder and CEO of CrowdSec. Thank you, sir, for taking the time to join us on the Ask Noah Show. We appreciate having you. You can learn more at crowdsec.net. Philippe, it's been a pleasure having you. We'll get you back on the program real soon.
1: Likewise, Noah. See you soon. Yeah,
2: we'll see you. Hey, so I've i uh I, I've started playing with it a little bit and trying to get my head wrapped around all of what CrowdSec can do. I, I got to tell you, I, I, I went into it with... I guess a little bit skeptical and the more I play with it the more I'm like man it's kind of a shame that we don't do all security this way because we can ask everybody how you're doing it and get real time feedback from the community as this is where the threats are this is what's working you know one thing you know we we didn't talk about it in the interview but one of the cool things that crowdsec can do is not only does it block traffic coming into your network but if you have a compromised device on the inside of your network it will also detect it trying to reach out to problematic IPs or problematic servers and block that. So just a really fantastic product. Steve, do you have uh, do you deal much with IDS or IPS um, in your day job? Do you come across it, and do you have anybody that you think would benefit from Crowdsec? Is that something that you know you could get behind?
0: Usually, we don't um, make too many. Recommendations to the SecOps teams just because they probably already have a corporate, mm, a corporate solution for requirements that they already are, are having because, you know, we're already talking about financial institutions or governments or, you know, fortune 500 companies. And by the time that you get to that, that size, a bunch of stuff is already really established in there. And, and honestly, they don't necessarily come to Red Hat for recommendations on, security products because you know we don't really uh, aside from stuff specific to ourselves like we have um acs which is a security tool for OpenShift and kubernetes but aside from some specialized stuff like that we don't really get into the security game either
2: i suppose to a certain degree offering unsolicited security advice is kind of like you know asking for a lawsuit right like hey here's the thing you didn't ask for but let me tell you about a, a security product and then when it doesn't work out well that guy from, you know, I can see how that would work.
0: Yeah, I would think that there would be some indemnity there because you, you have to do some level of due diligence on your own, or at least you should. But mm-hmm. at the same point, you know, uh, I'm an open shift in the container architect. And so I'm not really in a position to advise other than, hey, I've heard of this thing. You may want to look into it. Mm. Well, it's very
2: cool. Are you? Uh, do you have any consideration of playing with CrowdSec at your home?
0: Um, I haven't, I haven't really, I mean, honestly, uh, I don't view myself as a very big target. To be honest. <laughs> like
2: YouTube videos and, and Minecraft is not, uh, is not the, is not the, uh, security honeypot that, the uh, Philippe was talking about is what you're saying.
0: Yeah. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, uh, there's only so much time in the day for, for things that I'm interested in trying to pursue. So, um, Working outside of my core competency is a bit of a stretch.
2: Yeah, and you've, you've touched on that before a little bit. If, if it doesn't benefit you at work, it's kind of hard to make the investment. So anyway, a uh, huge thanks to Philippe for coming on the program. Absolutely fantastic, fantastic product. You're looking for IDS IPS. Um, I, it, I do want to draw some attention to an interview that we did with Matt Hicks back in 2019. So Matt was kind enough to come uh, on Ask Noah, and we interviewed him. And the video version of that is available on our Mind Drip Media YouTube page. So we'll have a link for you in the show notes. You'll find those at podcast.asknoahshow.com. Back then, he was the senior vice president of engineering at Red Hat and was just – he basically sat down to tell us how awesome Red Hat was. So when I think about what the new CEO position might look like or who might fit well in those shoes – and where will benefit the community and Linux at large? And I hear that Matt Hicks is the guy. My inclination is to say, this is good. This is very, very, very good. And of course, time will tell. Um, but a huge congratulation to Matt on the promotion. It's exciting to see where Red Hat will go. Uh, with him at the helm. And the music in our ears, it means we're out of time, but don't worry. You can catch the entire backlog of the Ask Noah Show, plus all of the articles and references we use to make the show. They're available for you at podcast.asknoahshow.com. While you're there, follow us on Twitter. You can follow me at Colonel Linux, him at Linux Ovens, and the show at Ask Noah Show. We record every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. That's live. At AskNoahShow.com, you can join the program, ask your questions, or send email to live at AskNoahShow.com. We'll be back next Tuesday at 6 p.m.